Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Well, I have two uh, individuals on the show today who are just dynamic in their own right. Uh, one is a really, really good friend, and the other is an exceptional reporter. My good friend is Jay Martin. The exceptional reporter is Alex Burns. What's going on, guys? How are He's y'all doing? He's going negative. Like first 10 seconds here. <laughs> what, what is this? I know. I want you to know that uh, um, I've been working with a few folks from the Trump administration, Stephen Miller and others, to help prep for this interview. Good friends of yours, I know. How is the how's the book tour going, guys? What's going on? We're having Talk a great time. We're we're in San Francisco, uh, spending a few days on the West Coast. We're in Portland, in Los Angeles. So if you're in uh, if you're in Portland or, or Los Angeles, we're going to be in your community this week. Come out and see us. Say hey, and we'll sign a book for you. And June twenty third, we'll be in Charleston at Bucks and Books. But yeah, we're going to Charleston, and I I hopefully um, I'm trying to get a moderator for that event. But you know anybody? Hmm. Let's think that through. I'm thinking like Hootie. Mark Sanford. Let's do Mark Sanford. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I'll call Mark. Mark's going to moderate our event. Mark Sanford, Joe Riley, Hootie. Who else we got? Uh, we don't need to have we'll Joe Riley. I love Joe Riley, but we won't. I mean, by the time he finishes his, his remarks, it'll be time to go to Halls. Uh, anyway, we know you, Jonathan. You've been on the show yeah. before, and you keep us on the loop in Twitter. Somebody needs to steal your Twitter sometimes. But, Alex, this is your first time on the show. Talk to us about the arc of your career Starting with your time at the Harvard University on the Harvard Political Review to the work you're doing now at the New York Times, walk us through the career stops in journalism from college to now. I first worked with uh, a Jonathan that was almost 15 years ago, and then moved over to the time, worked at uh, on the Metro desk at the paper uh, and uh, you know covering New York. Uh, politics. And then right around 2015, New York politics kind of merged with national politics, thanks to Donald Trump and to a lesser extent, Chris Christie. Um, and and back on the national uh, beat, I went. Um, Jonathan and I started working on this book uh, about two years ago. We've talked for years about doing a book together, but you know it's a big undertaking, uh, as you know. Uh, and we always sort of felt like if we're going to do a, a lift that heavy, we want it to be on a campaign uh, and, and at a political moment where it matters a lot and where it's really worth the blood, sweat and tears. Uh, and in 2020, we felt like this was it. Before we jump to the book, let's talk about current events really quick, quickly. Should we expect anything from this White House on how we address white supremacist domestic terrorism? Because I think if we look at the Cal Rittenhouses, the Dylan Roofs and now the Buffalo Massacre, we're starting to see, you know, the 4chan become mainstream politics and things that are parroted on on Fox News, and you see candidates like, or, or leadership like uh, Congresswoman Stefanik. What will we see and how will the White House be responding to this, do you guys think? You know, uh, President Biden speaking today in Buffalo, Bakari, I'm really curious to see his comments today and sort of how he goes forward uh, on this topic. You know, obviously, he, he got into the campaign um, in the first place, he said, because Charlottesville and this supremacist mob um, that rampages in Charlottesville sort of prompted him to come back to politics. Now, that may be more of a convenient origin story for, for what was Biden's third campaign for the presidency, but there's some truth to it. He obviously feels strongly about the issue. So I think he is well positioned to sort of take a stand on this. Now, substantively, what can you do as far as laws uh, and and um, and regulations? I think it's a whole different story, but I think in terms of the bully pulpit, I mean, my goodness, if Joe Biden cannot use this as something to sort of grab onto and denounce and speak out about, I'm not sure who can. So Alex, let me ask you this. I mean, Dems are going to get shellacked in November. 
um, from what we tell, and not just because of the climate, but also because of redistricting. But how badly do you think Dems are going to do this summer and or this, excuse me, this fall? And is there anything that can be done, whether or not you're talking about white supremacist domestic terror or inflation or just Joe Manchin? I mean, what what does the outlook look like, Alex? Look, I think it's obviously really tough, particularly in the House. Some of that is redistricting. Some of it is just that the margin is so, so small to begin with that you would need like a world historic overperformance in, in the midterm uh, in order to uh, keep control of the chamber. But Bakari, you look at uh, the Senate, you look at governor's races, and I think it's a much more a mixed picture. I think the environment's really, really tough for Democrats. But I think, uh, you know, if Republicans uh, do not lose this, uh, if, if Republicans don't blow it in November, it will not be for lack of trying, right? The people they're putting up uh, in some of these really big races are really, you know, some of them are really far out. Some of them have uh, some very, very serious uh, ethical and personal baggage uh, attached to them. And so I think it's, you know, it's really easy to see a scenario where Democrats just get clobbered all the way up and down the ballot. I think it's also not that difficult to see a scenario where the House looks really tough, uh, but where Republicans come up significantly short in a bunch of the big statewides uh, because they nominate people who are not in the political mainstream. And I do think that that's where uh, you know, the subject of your first question and, and, and second question kind of intersect a bit, where you know, it's not that I think uh, Americans are going to look at what happened in Buffalo uh, and say that is, uh, you know, my Republican congressman is responsible for that. But I do think uh, that if Joe Biden uh, is the, you know, if he is a messenger on a scale uh, that the moment demands uh, and sort of uh, tries to draw the country uh, back into a debate about what is politically mainstream and what is dangerous. There are obviously quite a few people in the Republican Party who have said and done things uh, that put them in a space that I think the broad mainstream of American politics is not going to be comfortable with. You know, this election cycle reminds me, and I think Donald Trump, the benefit of Trump to Democrats, is it reminds me of uh, Todd Aiken and uh, what's her name, who wasn't a witch? Oh, oh Donald. Christina yeah. Donald. Yeah. What is she doing now? Jay Mark, I mean, is she, did she write a blurb for the book? You know, I think she, she's opened up a very small sort of witchcraft operation <laughs> in Salem. In Salem, and, of, all, uh, of all places. Is working on some projects up there. Uh, I think there's a whole new perspective on witchcraft these days. I think folks are more open you to know, it, you yeah, know? Trust me, you never know. Let, let's talk. <laughs> Don't judge. I'm, okay. I'm the least judgmental person you'll ever meet. I'm friends with you. Let's talk about your new book, This Will Not Pass. So, Alex, J. Mark, why did you write it and what do you want readers to take from it? And even more importantly, like, how did y'all know when to stop? Yeah. Alex, yeah, I mean, that, the, the how do you know when to, when to stop question, uh, we had that conversation probably once a week uh, for you know, cal all of calendar year uh, 2021. Because, you know, we started out uh, thinking that we were going to do uh, a campaign book, then COVID hit, uh, then uh, uh, George Floyd uh, was killed, was murdered, uh, then the insurrection happened. And it was just clear uh, over and over and over again that like a campaign book is not going to be sufficient to capture this moment that we're in. And we're going to want to cover the campaign, the transfer of power, and then you know, get some real flavor of what happens next. But does that mean uh, going through the American Rescue Plan? Uh, does it mean going through, you know, whatever happens with infrastructure, build back better? And where we landed was we would, we would really like to see what happens with build back better. We'd like to be able to say something more definitive about whether Joe Biden managed to uh, not just beat Trump, but then uh, really deliver on his promises from the campaign or not. Uh, and I think we kind of got in just under the wire that we were able to uh, sort of capture the, de the demise of Build Back Better uh, last December. And, and, you know, the point at which it became clear to us, and I think, uh, uh, around the same 
time to the country as a whole that, yeah, Biden had managed to beat Trump. Uh, he had managed to get some real stuff done. But this idea that you were going to uh, break the fever in the Republican Party and bring the country back to uh, some version of normalcy, that that clearly wasn't going to happen. Why did you write this, uh, J. Mark? And what I mean, what, it, what when I I mean, I read it. Yeah. I think it's a I, I think it's a very well written book. So shout out to your Thank ghostwriters. You. Uh, <laughs> what do you what do you want? I mean, what do you want us to take from it? This country has lived through and is still living through a political crisis that's unlike any in sort of modern times that um, uh, you have two parties that are having great difficulty uh, in governing that are sort of, that are sort of stretched uh, to the limit in terms of trying to keep together their coalitions and trying to preside over a divided country. And especially with the Republican Party, you're sort of facing um, uh, extraordinary challenges uh, uh, in this moment and increasingly are much less reminiscent of sort of traditional center-right uh, American Republicanism and sort of closer to more of a nationalist type party of the sort that we see overseas. And I think it's important to sort of report that out and capture it uh, as it happens. And Alex and I had never done a book before. We had read a lot of books and we had uh, obviously covered politics together for 15 years. And he and I were determined that we would put reporting first and we would try to sort of get the most out of this moment. You know, we live in this sea of opinion and insight and takes uh, and sort of everybody and their, and their uncle who has a Wi-Fi uh, access can sort of like float what they think. What there's not a lot of is talking to people in both parties at the highest levels of government and trying to get at what are they doing and saying and thinking Bakari, when the cameras are not on and trying to convey that to people, what were your leaders doing in these tumultuous times behind the scenes? And I think with whether it's uh, memos or notes or audio recordings, I think we capture this pivotal moment in American history in this book, which is called This Will Not Pass. I don't know. Kirsten Cinema says it's a gossip rag. How much <laughs> of the 2022 midterms will be us still dealing with the remnants of the 2020 election? Is, is the, Are the midterms all about what happened in 2020 or is it a referendum on joe biden what is it look i think it's both but i think it's clear that because you know 2020 uh was more than anything a referendum on donald trump and that one of the you know i think it's clear it was clear ish at the time i think it's clear in retrospect that one of the big and wise strategic decisions that biden made was to you know keep his own agenda relatively vague and 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 a campaign in really broad strokes uh, in terms of the promises that the American people really heard from him and keep the focus on the fact that there was a president who was uh, bungling a, a once in a, a lifetime global uh, health crisis and who was wildly offensive to a majority of the country. Um, and, you know, on, on those terms, Biden did uh, pretty well in that election. He's the first person to beat uh, an incumbent president in, in a quarter century. Um, but having said that, like he's the president now and it, it's sort of his turn uh, uh, under the hot lights. And, you know, I think more than anything else, what is dragging down Democrats at the moment is the sense that Joe Biden came into office promising to uh, restore normalcy and to build back better. And we haven't even really uh, built back that like people don't feel good about their lives right now. And if we have a binary political system. It's really not that uh, complicated, as you know, in most midterm uh, elections. If you don't like how things are going, you either vote for the party that's already in power or you vote for the other guy to uh, register your discontent. And that seems to be what we're headed for right now. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered in the book about the evolution of the relationship between uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris 
Uh, and do you think she's effectively being deployed by this White House? And if that answer is no, how much of that in, through your research is because of the potential lingering issues between the Harris and Biden's camp, Biden camps that yeah. may have followed them to the White House? I mean, I know the answer no. to some of this, but I just have to ask the question of people. Yeah, no, there. Picard, I think, I, think, I think you know this better than anybody out there. Um, that you know, there's still tension between the vice president's office and, and, and the West Wing that, that certainly stem from 2020. And I think that that has never been fully resolved. And I think it's possible that it is never fully resolved. Look, I think she's trying to find her footing. She does not have deep experience in Washington. We report in the book that she sort of reached out to some people who, who do have more experience in Washington, sort of trying to get advice as to, as to uh, the way forward. Uh, people that include Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton, but also like Rahm Emanuel and Joe Scarborough. So she's trying to find her footing. And I think that obviously has created challenges. Um, but I also think that what's fascinating about this book, and Alex and I talked a lot about this, is we understand the grumbling that is sort of out there about Vice President Harris. But what we want to do in this book, Bakari, is capture her perspective too, not just the West Wing is annoyed because of Vice President Harris filling the blank, but also get at her perspective and her view as the first black woman in this job and try to capture where her, her head's at. And I think that we do that pretty effectively. How do you do it? Uh, by sort of capturing a lot of the sort of conversations that, that she's having and sort of capturing her view of President Biden, occasionally her frustrations with Biden, certainly her frustrations with Biden's staff, and also sort of getting at her trying to figure out the job itself and uh, what, what her role is going to be. We, we have a fascinating moment. Alex can, can jump in here and talk about it uh, at, at length. But, you know, she had a breakfast with, with Angela Merkel uh, that had a little bit of attention at the time, but we go a lot deeper on that conversation and sort of capture these two women who are grappling with, uh, you know, leading powerful countries in the West and Merkel offering uh, Kamala Harris some advice, but certainly Kamala Harris doing a lot more seeking of advice from Angela Merkel in that moment. And, um, you know, I've been surprised that there's not more reporting about those kinds of conversations. And I think that's one of the things that we do in this book that makes it, I think, a pretty good read. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it, I'm sorry. No, no, that's, I, I, to me, uh, I think there's a good reason why a lot of the reporting on the vice president so far is focused on the West Wing feeling like, you know, she's not uh, sort of clearing the bar they would like her to clear, right? I think they've made uh, some pretty uh, blunt and in, in many respects, valid criticisms. You know, we give you these assignments uh, uh, on the Northern Triangle and on other issues, and you sort of hold them at arm's length. We report in the book that she you know, claims the voting rights portfolio, but then doesn't uh, ever have a conversation with Joe Manchin or Lisa Murkowski about uh, the voting rights issues, two of the uh, most important uh, Senate votes on anything uh, related to voting rights. Um, but, Bakar, the other side of it uh, is that, look, uh, and, and I think you have been uh, as blunt as almost anybody uh, in public about this. Biden put her on the ticket uh, ostensibly, or he said, to make a big statement about the future of the country, uh, the composition of the Democratic Party, and what he wanted his administration to stand for. Uh, and then it doesn't really seem like there was ever uh, an intensive effort to follow through on the commitment that uh, that selection represented, right? That if you're going to uh, choose somebody as vice president who is not just another white guy who you can stick uh, in the OEOB and forget about uh, for four to eight years, then surely uh, there are some uh, sort of other implied commitments uh, there. Uh, and I, you know, to me, I think one of the uh, moments that really revealed just 
powerful off this is within the Democratic Party was when actually when you spoke out and said that the, the White House had given her uh, some trash assignments uh, and you got beaten up by uh, uh, the, the sort of pro-Harris wing uh, of people uh, because you were blunt about a, a reality that we all know to be the case. Yeah. I mean, coming in and tackling voting rights and, and immigration as your portfolio, knowing that it's not going to pass. I think it's just somewhat of a of a dead end job. And writing this book to kind of to kind of piggyback on that, um, what did you learn about the twenty twenty four Democratic presidential field if Biden doesn't run, and how much do you think the midterms or these midterms will determine if he runs for reelection in twenty twenty four? It's a great question, Bakari, and I think um, uh, if. Democrats do suffer sort of deep losses, governorships, lose both the House and the Senate. I think you'll have Democrats who have sort of bitten their tongues, frankly, for the last year, stop biting their tongues and and, and sort of say out loud um, that they're concerned about Biden's capacity to lead the party and sort of win the presidency again in 24. I think that's a conversation that you will see more out in the open if this midterm goes as bad as I know folks in your party fear it could. If it's not as bad, I think you'll see some restraint, and obviously, folks will, will um, you know, look back to 1996 and 2012 when Democratic presidents suffered midterm losses but still rebounded to, to win re-election. You know, I think there's a penalty uh, within uh, the parties and with you know both parties to sort of speak out and criticize your leader that that's only gotten stronger, and I think with Democrats. That penalty is even more severe because the perception is that you're only helping Trump when you criticize your own side. But look, I think if this thing's a wipeout, I mean, I think there is more of a permission structure that lets Democrats speak out about their concerns on Biden. Don't you? Oh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And some of us who don't care about that permission structure because our party is too old anyway. Zooming out a bit after this book, wow. I mean, one of the things that I realize is that, and what I one of the one of my takeaways is that the two-party system is really a part of the problem of why our democracy is broken. And I think this book underscores how fragile democracy is. Is that one of the themes that you all intentionally kind of laid out or is it just something that one will deduce from reading this book? No, I think it's a great, I think that's a great way of, of putting, I mean, the notion that democracy is uh, on relatively thin ice. I mean, you can use that as you travel. Yeah. I mean, you can, you don't attribute that to me. Like, we certainly believe that to be true, right? That the the, the fractiousness of our system, the uh, internal divisions are just so crippling at this point uh, in a way that goes beyond at least uh, our political culture of the last few decades. You know, we've had we've had darker moments in our history than this one, but uh, but it's a pretty bad uh, point right now. Your point about the two party system itself being. Uh, you know, part of the problem. I think we totally agree with that. I think we don't draw it out quite as much in the book uh, as uh, as we might have. But you know, one uh, senior Democratic member of Congress we interviewed, and I don't think we actually ended up uh, using this quote, was saying that look, if the Democratic Party uh, were uh, in a European country, it would be like six or seven different parties, right? And that's clearly true, right? You would have your socialists over here, your Greens over here, your sort of free market uh, liberals over here, and every your, conser your conservative Dems, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, you know your 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 labor with a U. 
Uh, and, and every couple of years, you would piece together like a coalition government. And by the way, you'd probably have some people who are uh, who are currently Republicans, but who you would induce to join anti anti-Trumpers. Yeah, anti you would you would have uh, uh, sort of the Liz Cheney breakaway faction in your coalition, and she would be the minister of uh, of the interior or something like that. But we don't have that kind of system. It's just not that dynamic. You have a, a one choice on the left, a one choice on the right, and the left, by the way, is everything from Joe Manchin uh, to Bernie Sanders, and the right uh, is everything. Uh, from, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 Adam Kinzinger to Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? And that is a really hard uh, way to do business. But, you know, it's also a hard thing to talk, you know, we, we've, as long as we've been political reporters, uh, every four years, except, I guess, for 2020. No, because there was Howard Schultz. Every, every four years, uh, somebody floats like the two-party system is the problem. We should find another way out of it. And there's just, there's just no escaping it. Uh, and it's a giant, giant handicap. So you mentioned a name. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Joe Manchin and his relationship with the White House here? Because uh, he makes a few cameos in the book and he's played such a vid, vid, ah, vital role in undermining this White House and Democratic priorities to date. Talk about the evolution of the relationship between Manchin and Biden detailed in the book and how close was Manchin to leaving the party altogether? Yeah, so we captured this remarkable scene, Bakari, uh, soon after Biden was sworn into the presidency in 2021, where uh, I think you're, some of your listeners will recall this, uh, Vice President Harris did a series of interviews, including some in West Virginia, sort of gently pushing Manchin to support the American Rescue Plan. Uh, and Manchin was really ticked off about that. And I think he expressed that publicly. Well, privately in those weeks, a few Senate Republicans had dinner with him and used that dinner on Capitol Hill to really push him to change parties. And he sort of gave a classic Joe Manchin response when Thune pushed him, John Thune pushed him. He said, well, John, if you were the Senate Republican leader, I would do it, which is uh, a sort of, you know, way that he's bullshitting with John Thune a little bit. And I think the Republicans realized that it was probably a long shot at that point. So I'm not sure he was ever close to leaving the party, but just that opening, the fact that he can do it tomorrow, that that gun's always loaded, Bakari, I, I think is very powerful. And obviously it sort of uh, creates challenges for Democrats. He, he can control the agenda uh, to a great degree. And I don't totally understand why when he was difficult in the final days of passing the American Rescue Plan in 2021, what, why the White House didn't realize that they would have to sort of be much more mindful of, of his priorities and sort of doing what he wanted to do um, uh, later that year on Build Back Better. I mean, clearly he was reluctant to sort of do too, too much, but he was open. He put it on paper and gave Chuck Schumer a letter about what he would do on Build Back Better. And I'm just I'm just not sure why um, they why else wouldn't sort of take that as a burden hand at the time, because obviously uh, once the fall came around, he was looking for any reason not to support the, the sort of big uh, expansive proposal known as Build Back Better. It was in inflation one day, and um, then it became the the war in Ukraine, and and now it's mid May, and here we are, and the thing is out of stand. I can't wait to see who writes the book, President Mansion. I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be like a tracing tracing his relationship with Nick Saban through. But the, this is the whole thing, Bakari is like West Virginia. He, uh, you know, we asked some folks about it, like you know. Can't can't you try to work Mansion and sort of take care of his state? And what's striking about Mansion is that unlike you know Robert Byrd, for example, 
he's not somebody who will just sort of take a, a massive amount of pork for you know a bridge or a highway in his state and call it a day. He's totally you know dedicated to bipartisanship for the sake of bipartisanship. And he just he 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 didn't like legislation that was not bipartisan, and he would always push back against it. Yeah, he just doesn't have the policy depth, but that's a whole other story. How can folks find the book and how can they follow you both on social media? And guys, I will tell you, the book is not all doom and gloom. A good portion of it is, but it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> it actually has some some great antidotes in there. But how can people find the book and follow you both on social media? Well, the book is called This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. It is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and hopefully in your local independent bookstore as well. If if you are in a position to pick it up from an independent bookseller, we both strongly encourage you to do so. I'm on Twitter at AlexBurnsNYT, all one word. And I'm JMartNYT on Twitter. Um, and uh, we'd be grateful if you're all, your audience would pick up a copy of this will not pass. There's a lot of reporting in there. And frankly, if you heard about the book and sort of seen some snippets or heard the McCarthy audio, there's a lot more beyond that that you're going to be really it's fascinated. It's a fascinating book for political junkies, people who fear democracy is slipping, uh, people who love Trump, people who hate Trump, people who are trying to figure out what the hell this Democratic Party is doing. Thank you both for joining us. It was a privilege to have you guys. I'll see you with one or both of them on June 23rd. And also check them out while they're on the road. They're actually, it's the first wave of authors that are able to do yeah. actual in-person events. So um, shout out to you all. Enjoy, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bakari. Appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks, Alex. Be safe, guys.